0: Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, people have been asking for an Elixir presence client for years. And thanks to the work by Berenice Medell, who I actually get to work with. Yay. Hey, Bernice. Well, she worked on a Phoenix presence client. It's actually already been merged in. It will be coming out in future version. What does this actually mean? Well, this allows consuming presence diffs efficiently on the server, just like you're able to via external clients. So an example that Chris McCord gave when asked, what does this mean? He's saying, well, you can handle a list of users with notifications, et cetera, from an elixir process. You can think live view or bots and notifiers. Some of this was actually re-implementing some JavaScript logic in Elixir, so now I just imagine the army of Elixir-powered robots being able to have presence, notify them when their other robot friends are online and they're coordinating to take over the world, benevolently, of course. (laughs)
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Speaking of Phoenix News, LiveView zero seventeen
1: dot eight was released. So this includes the Heeks template formatter. So that was recently merged into master, but now it's in a tagged release. So you get the benefit of that, except for you VS coders out there, may not be working for you right now. <laughs> but if you're if you're the of the elites running neovim then you you might be covered. <laughs> and uh just to remind you how to use it, you just run mix format file path. Now you do have to like add your heeks templates to your uh formatter config thing to go search in those directories, but as long as you have the HTML formatter in there, it should just format it so it's one less thing to worry about, which I'm all down for. I remember when the Elixir formatter came out, I was just like, so pleased. I was like, man, it's just one thing I don't have to worry about anymore. And HTML has still been one of those like thorns of just like, ah, this just looks different depending on who's, who's writing it. Do you indent on long attributes or do you not? Like So yeah, HTML Heeks template formatters is in 0.17.8 now.
0: Yeah, we've got a link to the docs in there where they kind of walk you through what you need to do to enable it for your project. Updating like the file to configure it. But yeah, like as you mentioned, it's not working smoothly for everybody in VS Code right now. I got a link in the show notes to two different issues where we're kind of tracking and talking about those things. And that's just one of those things that's, that happens a lot when a new library comes out. It takes time for the rest of all of the libraries and ecosystem to catch up. But it totally does work. I've, I've really loved working and using it just from the command line. Like I'm working in a template and I'm going to be working in that template for a little while so I can just keep, you know, easily reformatting that one as I'm going. So great to see that. Love it. Hey, also
1: in the Phoenix Live View update, there's new support for Phoenix Change, the Phoenix Change hook on individual inputs. So Phoenix Change has been there forever, I think, but usually you put it on the, the, the whole form. So, when the form changes, like a validate event, for example it'll it'll send the whole form back with all the values in there well that this enhancement includes Phoenix change to work on individual inputs, so you can still validate your whole your whole form, but if you're targeting like a specific input to say like your username changed or something like that, then you can also get that event to get precisely sent back to you know, the, the back end. There's other good changes in here. I'll go through them quickly, but now there's a dispatching of a mouse event on the client. You can add a bubbles option to the JS dispatch. There's more exposing of the underlying live socket instance on hooks. And then finally, while you're on localhost, for example, developing Phoenix Live View will, will
0: will now turn on debug mode by default. Also, a good swath of bugs were fixed in this, as always. And next up, Flame On, which is the new Flame Graph Live View component from Mike Bins, was updated to version 0.5.0. So there's a link to that in the show notes. But the main thing here is the capture engine was rebuilt from the ground up. So if you were having issues generating Flame Graphs for larger call traces previously, give this new release a try. Open
1: adds a new inline mode. This is important because it makes testing more straightforward. So if you're ever writing a test and you don't want to worry about, you know, separate processes spinning up inside your tests, which makes, you know, testing some things more complicated. Now you can set Obin to run in inline mode, which means it doesn't actually, you know, spawn a new process or do any backgrounding. It actually just processes it inline, like it says. So as soon as you hit queue up or performer, whatever it is, then it will do it right then and there inside of your same process. I think that's going to be really cool. I've missed that in uh, Sidekick. Now
0: Oben gets that same treatment. And previously, Mitch Hanberg was on the show in episode 92. We have a link to that in the show notes where we're talking about his work on the Temple library, which is an alternative templating library to EEX. And on Twitter, there was some conversation as follow-up from that episode where Jose and Marlus and Mitchell were kind of chatting about how Temple can leverage some of the EEX modules to help accomplish some of the problems he was mentioning. So Mitchell wrote an article about how EEX works. That's something we'll have linked in the show notes where you can check it out as a follow-up to that. I just thought it was really helpful how he breaks it down. Like there's several
1: modules and they have their responsibilities. And so if you're ever curious about how, to, how you can leverage like the, the EEX superpower, you, know, you don't have to do the whole thing. You can look for some of those specific modules and make your own language. All right, exorcism.io adds a Gen Server learning exercise. This is great because there's a lot of like learning courses out there that uh, g- generally have the same lessons and they're just re-implemented in different languages. Well, uh, Elixir and Erlang are a little bit different in that they have OTP, these these other concepts out there, and so oftentimes I don't see exercises out there that really leverage the language. Well, Gen Server is one of those unique things about Elixir and Erlang. And now Exorcism has a course that really exercises your learning on gen servers. So we have a link to it. Angelika toborska let us know about it. This looks great. You know, I've always liked Exorcism. Now I like it more. We talked with Angelika about the Elixir track in episode 50. So you can go check out um, that episode for more, more info, more background on on how that stuff works. It became possible to do this because of the recent new version of ExorcismBot.io. If you're a longtime listener, you may remember that we mentioned that back in that episode, 50, but we've also mentioned it in some news segments. So here's some of that fruit now that we get to to enjoy. So it's great to see that they were able to create the new lesson and really start showing some of the uh, uniqueness and greatness of, of Elixir and Erlang.
0: And previously in one of our news segments, we'd mentioned that Apple was hiring Elixir people for their environment team. Their goal with the environment team is to be carbon neutral by 2030. So at the time we were talking about it just as an interesting thing that Elixir has some role in Apple, at least in one area. So the latest news here is that a tweet from Andrea Leopardi let us know that he's working there now with the environment team. So that's cool. And maybe someday in the future, we can learn a little bit more about how they're using Elixir there. All right, last up. We found a YouTube video that goes over Elixir in about a
1: hundred seconds. It's created by Fireship.io. They offer paid courses covering many different programming topics, but uh, they have a whole series on this kind of stuff. Pretty cool of them to include Elixir in that. Pretty funny, like little animations in there too. So if you already know about Elixir, maybe just watch it for the <laughs> for the for the lulls. It's a great super condensed crash introduction into Elixir. So you can watch for your, for yourself, maybe share with a friend, introduce them to Elixir. Yeah, it seems like a great little video. And
0: that's it for the news. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Philip Sampaio. Philip, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So, Philip, you are one of those people who works at Dashbit. And you've also been working on some interesting stuff recently. You were sharing that online. And what I thought was really cool was this idea of Rust and Rustler pre-compiled. And we really wanted to make sure we got an understanding of what was going on here, what this can do for our Elixir projects, how this might change things going forward with library choices or not. You know, just looking forward to picking your brain here. But before we jump into all of that, I'd love to hear more about you. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing?
2: Okay, so my name is Philip Sampaio, and I live in Sao Paulo, Brazil. It's a a city from Brazil. I'm also Brazilian, and yeah, I work at Dashbit. We do a lot of open source there, and we also help companies to adopt Elixir, I've been working professionally for about 13 years or 14 years and with Elixir for around seven years, I think. And my most known project is Floki. It's the HTML parser. And yeah, I started to work with Elixir uh, actually in Floki.
1: Floki is used now, I think officially in Phoenix Live View, I think, right? It used to not be, or is it just for tests? I can't remember.
2: It's been used for tests, and there's a a tiny layer around Floki, so you you don't use the the Floki interface directly, but uh, it's a nice abstraction that people are using for for testing liveview.:
0: What I think is fun about Floki is we often see it in use for tests, right? But you could actually use that just as exploring a web page that you're scraping right, just for pulling content out? This was the,
2: the first idea. Actually, uh, I created Floki to scrap a web page that uh, has a lot of beautiful wallpapers or beautiful photographs <laughs> that I, I could use as wallpapers. And uh, They didn't have an API for that, so I started Flowkey, uh as a, an experiment. I was learning Elixir at the time, and yeah it, it became a, a an open source project uh, the the first version was really not good it was only regular expressions <laughs> yeah <laughs> i managed to to improve that and it's it's being used in a few projects yeah
1: I use it on my blog too. Every every time I push a commit, I have a CI uh, task that runs to validate all the URLs that I have in my blog post. So that way I know that if there's a link that's broken, I go and fix it. Or if there's a redirect, I just I, I avoid the redirection hop and just go to where it was gonna redirect to.
3: Fancy.
0: Yeah, so really helpful in those like situations. Well, now hopefully we can talk to you more about Rustler and what you've been doing here. Because I think most of the listeners will have heard of the programming language Rust. We've talked about Rust and Rustler before on the show. Maybe you can give a
2: brief explanation of what Rustler is. Okay, so Rustler is a project. uh, It was created by a guy called Hans Elias. Uh, I don't know if I pronounced his name correctly, but the idea is to to be a a bridge between elixir and rust Uh, so you you can write some code in in rust and use that in elixir and we we can use that using a, a thing called nif which stands for native implemented function rustler makes it easier to, to write those NIFs and safer to write those NIFs so you can use your code without much work. You have some macros and functions that you can use to, to write those NIFs.
0: I know there's been a challenge for people who've wanted to use Rustler in the past, and, and even today, where there's a challenge where they are having to have the whole Rust toolchain Installed on their machine, so like I've got Elixir installed, and I want to use something that uh, a, a library that uses Rustler, then I have to have Rust installed, the whole build tool chain for that. And then when I go to compile my project, it's probably going to be doing the Rust compilation step too. Is that right? Is that kind of where we we are sitting with the situation?
2: Yeah, correctly, we have to to have rust installed and i think this is not a problem for developers we are kind of used to to install tools in in our machines but there's a another problem we we have to prepare our ci servers or build pipelines and, and install rust there so sometimes you you need a a lot of time to to do that to to Go through the installation and to through the compilation of your Rust project. Yeah, this this can take some time and can make things harder.
1: Where would this be helpful in like a, a typical Elixir's lifetime? Like, where are they going to run into a Rust project if they're just trying to do an Elixir app? Like, where do you, I know it could be in a variety of places? But do you have some popular examples of where Rustler is used?
2: Rustler can be used for things that need uh, number crunching or something that uh, needs uh, a parser that is more complex than the usual. An example is the HTML parser called HTML Fiverr. That is from the Servo project by Mozilla. HTML is really hard to, to parse. It's a really CPU intensive task. So this package can can be used as an example of Rustler being used to, to create this, this bridge. I would say that anything that has to be uh, fast and CPU intensive, I think it's a, a good fit for Rustler.
1: So HTML5 ever is a good example of a Rust-based HTML parser. And if I remember right, does, does Floki have an option for using that as the parser underneath?
2: Yes, this is cool because I had to to work before in HTML5 ever, and I had to to make it work first uh, in order to prove the concept of Rustler precompiled. This is an example, but uh, I will talk more later. But there is another great example, which is uh, the Explorer. There is a project. That brings data frames to to Elixir, which is using Rustler. So I'm looking
0: forward to understanding more about how the pre-compiled stuff works. But I guess before we get there, you wrote a blog post that was on the Dashbit blog. And I was just wondering, because it's on the Dashbit blog, it's not a personal project, at least the way I see it, right? That it was kind of being supported by Dashbit. So I'm just curious as to what's driving this. Like where's the the need for this coming from? Is there a client need and and what does that look like?
2: José may have talked about the numerical Elixir projects and the the idea to to work with machine learning and artificial intelligence and stuff like that. And we needed to have a, a tool to work with data frames. In Python, we have this tool called Pandas. And in R, we we have a, a bunch of tools, but uh, DPLR, I, I don't know if I pronounced it that correctly, and that this tool called it Explorer, created by a guy named it Christopher Granger, I think this is his name, and it's a data frame library, so we can work with uh, projects that involve uh, large data sets. And Explorer uses another library from the Rust community called Polars. So Polars is an efficient implementation of data frames in Rust. And yeah, it has bindings for Python and Node.js. It's supported by the the main project, but there was nothing in Elixir. So Christopher, uh, he started this project I think he started the project based in another fork, a, a project called EX Polars. And we decided to unite forces and uh, work together, Dashbit and Christopher, so we can provide functionalities to, to explore. And one of the things that we wanted to do was to avoid the the burden of having to install Rust for, for every user that want to, to use Explorer. So the the idea of Rustler Pre-Compiled came from this necessity of having a fast installation and a clean installation of Explorer.
0: That makes sense. So if I can recap a little bit, you have the NX project, or you have machine learning. There's a lot of libraries that are already out there in the machine learning community, and some of them are using Rust. And in order to integrate and be able to leverage those, we needed to have better support for for that. And really, I think that last point is the big one. We talked about as developers, it's not a big ask for us to say, oh, you also have to have this other build tool installed. But when you have a whole team of people and maybe only one or two people are actually doing anything with data frames and Explorer and the rest of them are just using a project that happens to depend on that. Then, if I can not have to have everyone do all that compilation,
2: all that install and setup, then that's just that's just a better experience right for sure, for sure. The idea is to not have another step for for the user and I imagine that uh people will start to to learn Elixir using Livebook, for example. And it's really easy to install a dependency using Livebook, but if we we ask the user to install another toolchain, chain it's it's going to be really hard for for them to to start with elixir yeah,
0: that makes sense. I think that's a good place to say now let's start talking about the precompiled stuff and specifically the work that you've been doing there so the GitHub project is described as used precompiled nifs from. Trusted sources in your Elixir code.
2: How does the trusted sources part work? So the trusted source means that it's a well-known URL. Uh, you have to specify that in your module, and it's using SSL to secure the connection. And it's also using a thing called a Jacksons. Which makes sure that no one changes the the file after the publication of the package. Of course, it's not 100% secure, but you can avoid a lot of supply chain attacks and stuff like that, which is a big concern for people. So, yeah, it's basically that it's a URL that you know upfront from from the source, and the build process also. We say in the blog post that we are using GitHub Actions to, to build the pre-compiled NIFs. The idea is that this process of compilation can be reviewed and audited or something like that. So people can, can trust that the code was really built using the, the right tools and the right code.
0: I think the big question people are going to have when they hear about this is they think, wow, there's native compilation happening let's assume that I trust the source where it's at and I can use the checksums to verify that what I got is what was originally published. So I'm confident there. But then you're just dealing with all of these different architectures, right? We have the different x86 architectures. You have the M1 architectures. Then if, you, if you're nerves or anything like that, then you have all these different kinds of different chips that you're having to target. And then I don't know if this is important, but then you talk about like, is this glibc? or what kind of other
2: operating system libraries need to be there. So how is any of that being dealt with? So the precompilation is aiming some targets, which are the, the list of machines and architectures and vendors. A target actually is the combination of the operational system, the system architecture, the vendor, and the library used to compile it, the, the tool used to compile it. Uh, can be g c c muzzle and what we are doing inside rustler precompiled is to trying to figure out the architecture that the target system is running so for example, if we are compiling to Raspberry Pi machines, we are compiling to a different target our host computer is one the the Raspberry Pi is another uh, machine. It's the target machine. We use some environment variables to decide which architecture and which operational system is running on that target. So we have an algorithm that matches the, the architecture that you are running or the targets that is running with a triple architecture from Rust. So we can decide which package or which file to download in the the compile time. Where's the the hosting for the pre-compiled packaging
1: packages going to be hosted? Is that all taken care of by Hex? Are these uploaded and stored in Hex? I imagine that this is like a you know, an an n times five or six kind of like operation here for each of those packages that are on, you know, using Rustler and Rustler compiled and uh, I can't imagine that all of these packages are going to be you know, small. Some of them might be large if they're doing something like image magic, right? Or maybe I don't know. Maybe that's small too. <laughs> you know, is is that all being taken care of by by hex?
2: No. The initial idea was to publish the the precompiled nifs the the binary files to the place that we are building it. So we are using GitHub, and we are suggesting the usage of. Uh, releases, the GitHub releases. So the idea is that in in the build pipeline, after a new tag, the project can uh, upload the the generated files to a release page from GitHub. And we can use the download from the release. So the packages that are using Rustler Precompiled I using now from GitHub releases but this is flexible and we can use from anywhere the idea is is try to come with a solution for that in the future maybe using hacks but for now the only thing that needs to go to to hacks is the your package and the checksum file that uh, guarantees that the files are legit
0: I can see a potential real benefit to teams who want to use Rust in a NIF, like in their project, where they can just do that pre-compile. Maybe it's built even on their CI server, but for all the developers who are doing working on other features, like I'm working on a dashboard page and I'm not doing anything directly with a NIF, that I'll still get the benefits of that being pre-compiled, even if it's just within my company. Is that right?
2: Yeah, for sure. The initial idea is to use Rustler precompiled for libraries, but users can use that for personal projects and avoid the need for everyone to compile the project from from scratch. And there is a, a another feature that I didn't mention is that you can force the compilation from scratch if you need or if if some machine is not in the list of precompiled targets.
3: So I remember some time ago. Discord came out with a library for dealing with massive amounts of data and they used Rustler to get something like 100 plus X performance over because they're just dealing with so much data at the time. So I think this probably came out before Rustler pre-compiled. So does that mean every developer at Discord would then have to have, like all their CI machines had to have like the Rust tool chain on it? All of the devs had to have Rust toolchains installed and like Rust became like a staple at the company just because they wanted to use a NIF in Rust. And so this, this kind of would alleviate, would have alleviated that situation where like one dev could have got it all working, pre-compiled it, got it all set up and nobody has to care that it's actually using Rust behind the scenes.
1: But now they all have to install Crate and
3: Rust-C and all <laughs> Yeah.
2: Yeah. I think you're talking about sorted set by the way. Yeah, it's a mutating data structure. Yeah. I think maybe they they had developed a custom solution for that because rustler accepts the if you if you already have the the nif precompiled, you can pass an option to rustler to load that nif, but you have to do that. It's the same work that rustler precompiled is is doing under nif. Uh, but you, you have to do that manually. I think they may have reached a reach, uh, solution like that to, to avoid all the compilation.
0: Philip, you would mentioned this idea that really this pre-compiled thing was created with the idea of libraries and library authors in mind. So I'm just curious as to where you see that going because we include a link that David shared in the show notes where you can check out a list of HexPM packages that use Rustler. And there's a very small number that are quite popular and then a long tail. But I'm just curious, do you think that this is the kind of thing we should expect to see? Or maybe even it's okay now to say, hey, we can use Rust to create some high-performance libraries that are used in Elixir?
2: So, yes, I think it's a good idea now to, to have more libraries using Rust and Rustler. Because we have a growing community of Rust developers and Rust packages. And we can benefit from that in the Elixir community or the Bing community, because usually they are uh, great packages, but we have this dependency of having to install Rust and Rustle chain. But I think, yeah, for things that require performance and number crunching, I think this is a good idea. I wouldn't develop a new package that does not have this in mind because I think Elixir is great and can solve a lot of problems. But things that are in the, the field of machine learning, mathematics or science, I think it's a good fit to write a Rustler or Rustler precompiled project to use the language. All right,
1: Philip. So we've talked a lot about about Rust. And I know that our stations are very excited about all this talk about Rust, but we got to give a little love to some, some Ziggies out there. Have you ever written some Zig? Do you know about Zig?
2: I, I didn't, but I know uh, the project, I know the, the language, and I want to, to try sometime. But yeah, I, I don't have experience with that yet.
1: Well, I'll I'll set it up a little bit for for the listeners. So Zig, Zig is a good interface for compiling a lot of C projects as well, right? So we've been talking about Rust, which requires you to write it in Rust. And Rust can't compile C code. It's compiling Rust code. And there's still a lot of good libraries, good, performant, efficient libraries out there written in C. These NIFs that are using C experience the same kind of trouble, you know, that that. Uh, wrestler comp- pre-compiled is going to be solving right. Avoids the whole C compiling toolchain to be involved if you wanted to install one of these libraries. One library that comes to mind that uses C is is Jiffy. Jiffy is one of those JSON parsing libraries that's um, pretty pretty efficient, right? But requires you to compile native C code. Zig is also a language of of its own, but it has a superpower in that it can also compile C code. A unique feature of zig is that it can do cross-platform targets so i can be on a on a mac and compile for linux or god forbid windows <laughs> <laughs> and i th- I think that's all possible so you're you're hearing this from a non low-level programmer by the way so it's just my understanding of it so all that to say you know wrestler and wrestler pre-compiled solves it for a good portion of libraries that could be really helpful but i think there's still a gap here that could be Solved with with Zig and potentially a Zig precompiled kind of kind of thing here. So I I wonder how close we are to that future. Yeah,
0: could a lot of the same ideas or even the tools or infrastructure be used for something like Zig and Zigler?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think the the basic idea can can be used for Zigler projects, but I think it will take a, a different approach, uh, maybe in, in the CI level or or something like that but i think the idea of cross compilation and have uh, multiple targets and you download that in the uh, in compilation time i think it can be used for Ziegler projects and my initial idea of rustler precompiled was to be agnostic of rustler but it would open too much the, the scope of the project. So I decided to start first with Rustler and then go for other platforms. But, but I think, yeah, it, it's possible to implement something like that for, for Ziegler as well. What I think is so interesting about this, we talked about
0: how Rustler Precompiled really kind of came out of this idea of NX and machine learning, and a lot of libraries there. But it really comes down to performance and when you're really crunching numbers. And I just know when I first came to Elixir, you know, people come to Elixir from every kind of different direction. Like a lot of the initial wave kind of came from Ruby and Ruby was an interpreted language. Performance was not Ruby's strength. And Elixir was a lot faster than Ruby. But then you have other people coming from maybe optimized Java code or other languages where... Performance was more of what they expected. You would hear complaints like, oh, well, Elixir is not fast. And it's always been more than fast enough for anything I've been ever, ever thrown at it. So I've never actually personally said, wow, this is not fast. But when we start seeing tools like this, it just lowers that barrier. It makes it easier for people to reach for these tools that are really performance oriented so that we can leverage those existing libraries or even write a custom library that does the thing that we need in the most performant way. What I love about seeing your work here is that it's just removing barriers to say, yes, Elixir can totally also take advantage of those things.
2: It's something like that that I had in mind when I started developing Rustler precompiled. I saw the, the benefits of having projects written in Rust used by project in elixir but i also saw the the pain that was teams to to have to install the the, the ci uh, i think it's the m the, the most pain point that i, I saw but yeah for newbies starting with the language it, it's it's pretty sad when they reach the language and they don't see the performance that they were imagine for some things that they are used to in other languages and if it's harder to, to install. So, yeah, my, my initial idea was to prove that Elixir can be used in much more fields that it's used now because I think, as you said, Elixir is good for 80% of my work, uh, I would say. But the 20% that needs more performance, I think Rust and Rustler can can be a, a good fit for. Well, Philip, one of the things you mentioned there
0: that we talked about a little while ago was the CI aspect. And I think that's where people are going to have a lot of their first questions about how do I get this set up in my CI? How do I do this? I love the idea of bringing this into my team and maybe letting us do some more things with Rust to solve specific problems that we have. Is there any resources or things that people could do how do they how do they get started with doing this on a CI?
2: Okay, so there's a project called uh, Rustler precompiled example. It is on my GitHub page and I I have there a complete workflow for an, a simple example app that is using Rustler precompiled. So there we have a list of targets and we do all the cross compilation in the CI. So there's a matrix targeting all the most popular architectures and operational systems. People can use that project and can, can really follow the workflow from the documentation and can, can publish their packages. So yeah, that is a good example. Well, Philip,
0: we're about out of time, but before we let you go, I just want to find out what do you have planned next? Are there any big things coming? Are you interested in people helping out? Is there contributions, welcome? Like, What what can people do to get involved? Could you you tell us any secrets of Dash Bits? Maybe?
2: (laughs) (laughs) What does Jose eat for lunch? Yeah, uh, contributions are always welcome. And the project, I consider the project near to complete. There are two open issues. One of them is to provide the ability to add or remove a target. Right now, the list of targets are hard-coded. So we have a list of some targets aiming uh, macOS, some other Linux, and some targets for Windows. And they are targeting also different processors or architectures. But I imagine that in the future, we will have something like RISC-V PCs or something like that. And we want to make that uh, flexible enough for people to, to choose. And the other one, it's a documentation issue. So yeah, anyone that wants to get involved with the project is invited to contribute. Yeah.
0: And if people want to reach out to you or follow you, what's the best place to do that?
2: Okay, uh, my GitHub, uh, which is my nickname, Fuse, and Twitter. uh, I'm also publishing on Twitter, uh, and you can find me there uh, with the handle of Philip Sampaio. It's my name. We'll
0: have links to all that in the show notes. All right. Well, Philip, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciated talking with you. And I'm excited about what this Rustler precompile library really represents. And, you know, we talked about the, the potential for Zig as well, just that I think it's helping to remove those barriers and those objections that people may have to using Elixir in their organizations, just saying, hey, you have Rust or other things you need to leverage. This is an easy way to do it. And there's a better integration now, a better story. So I'm really excited about that. Thank you for all your work on that. But unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.